Good afternoon, my, and welcome to the Atlantic Council. My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy. I'm the director of the South Asia Center here. It is my pleasure to be here today with John Groor. He serves as USAID's mission director in Pakistan, one of the largest overseas missions for the agency. John has a long and distinguished career spanning the world and tackling some of the trickiest development challenges. Prior to Pakistan, he served as USAID's Haiti's mission director, where he oversaw a program to help Haiti recover after its devastating earthquake. Going by these credentials, I think your next posting will be in India to see, oversee the Chennai floods. <coughs> His expertise will drive the conversation today on the displacement of persons from some of Pakistan's most conflict-ridden areas, the federally administered tribal areas. After years of instability in Fatah and the military campaign launched last year in North Waziristan, Pakistan possesses over one million displaced persons. Given this large number, Pakistan and the United States recognize the potential for this issue, if unaddressed, to impact Pakistan by furthering in hindering the normalization and productivity of a sizable region, and also to impact Afghanistan due to number of conflict displaced persons it houses despite its own developmental challenges. Attention to these issues threatens to negate successes from Pakistan's campaign to eradicate milit militancy in its northwest region. To that end, the U.S. and Pakistan have worked together to develop a program to rehabilitate Fatah <coughs> and aid conflict-displaced persons. In early 2015, Secretary Kerry announced a commitment of $250 million to Pakistan that will bring emergency food, aid, shelter, health, education, transport, and livelihoods, as well as livestock support. In addition to U.S. support for reconstructing schools, hospitals, water supply systems, roads, and bridges in Fatah. As a part of this pledge last month, under John Groor's guidance, the USAID launched a 30 million USAID-supported program for Fatah livelihood and education. We are pleased to have John with us today to discuss these efforts and the greater implication of addressing conflict-displaced populations because, of, of course, this crisis is not unique to Pakistan. The international community today faces a refugee crisis across South Asia, from Afghanistan to Libya. And in that context, I have our colleague from the South Asia Center, Ambassador Cunningham, who will follow John's presentation. I'll stop here because um, John will elaborate further, and we will go as follows. After John provides his remarks, we'll, uh, we'll move to Ambassador Cunningham, who will, who will further elaborate his, uh, his remarks on the subject. And then from there, we'll take questions and answers. Thank you. John, the floor is yours. <clears throat> okay, uh, good afternoon, and uh, thank you for inviting me to speak here this afternoon. Um, I'm a newcomer to Pakistan. I've been there now for about four months. It's, uh, I think, the only South Asian country that I have not worked in previously. So I consider myself very much a student of Pakistan. And uh, the longer I'm there, the more I realize uh, how much I actually don't know, and perhaps will never know. Uh, as was mentioned before, the Agency for International Development has its two largest programs in the world in South Asia, in Pakistan, and in Afghanistan. And that, of course, reflects <clears throat> the foreign polit policy imperatives of, of our government. Um, the program that we have uh, in Pakistan uh, is valued, the economic assistance program is valued at about $5 billion, and that includes humanitarian assistance. 
And um, the work that USAID does uh, covers five broad sectors, including uh, energy, agriculture and economic growth, health, education, democracy and governance, and most importantly, what we call stabilization, or what the Pakistanis prefer uh, to call it resiliency. And th this is, uh, these are activities that one does not normally associate with traditional development. Now we at USAID see our, uh, our mission to help promote a secure, stable, and prosperous Pakistan because that is both in the interests of the United States government and uh, the Pakistani government. Uh, but through our work, we promote uh, a variety of other US government interests in Pakistan, including those uh, concerning broader regional stability, particularly with respect to Afghanistan and Afghan reconciliation. One of the most interesting parts of our portfolio uh, as, uh, as was just mentioned, is the work that we're doing in the federally administered tribal areas uh, and in uh, mostly in Hyber Pakhtunkhwa with the approximately one million displaced uh, Pakistanis uh, from the border regions. Uh, I use the word approximately because uh, the data that we receive from both the Pakistani government and the United Nations which plays a leading role in providing assistance to Pakistanis who have been displaced from the border regions. The, the data is, uh, it, it's an approximation because the United Nations counts families and not people. So from that, we're able to uh, derive uh, the data. Uh, we believe about 1.6 million uh, Pakistanis uh, as, late as this spring uh, had been displaced. We believe that about a third or a little bit more than a third have now returned to the tribal areas. The Pakistani government has a plan and a timetable to eventually uh, have all of the displaced return and, and they're adhering to that timetable. The the management uh, of uh, the provision of assistance to and the eventual return of the displaced is one of the highest priorities of the Pakistani government uh, and the Pakistani military. Uh, when I meet with my ministerial colleagues, uh, this is an issue that frequently comes up and uh, the Pakistanis uh, express their appreciation for the assistance that the United States is providing. Uh, the displaced, as I mentioned earlier, are mostly in Hyber-Pakhtunkhwa, and much of our assistance is provided through local organizations and through the United Nations. For example, food assistance is provided uh, through the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, as, as well as the World uh, Food Organization, or excuse me, the World Food Program. And uh, as, as you heard earlier, uh, we provide a variety of assistance uh, to displaced Pakistanis, but we also provide assistance uh, to those Pakistanis who do return 
to the tribal areas. We provide them with provisions for about six months. And we are currently, and in the future, will be implementing new programs to promote economic growth, uh, particularly job-related economic growth uh, in the border regions. And uh, for example, given the lack of financial institutions in the tribal areas, we're going to be implementing a, a small and micro enterprise program. Uh, we're providing um, education assistance. Uh, only about 10% of the women in the tribal areas, for example, are literate. Um, we continue to work with the World Health Organization and UNICEF to eradicate uh, polio, which is endemic in the uh, Afghan-Pakistani uh, border region. Um, it's very difficult for the Pakistani government uh, to adequately control uh, those who cross the borders. So what the UN is doing now, and it's proven to be uh, more effective, is actually stopping children as they cross the Afghan-Pakistan frontier and just vaccinating them. And uh, the good news is that this year we've seen a reduction in the number of polio cases in Pakistan down to 41. And as many of you know, I'm sure that Afghanistan and Pakistan are the, the two lone holdouts, the only two countries in the world uh, where polio is still uh, present. And uh, working with the United Nations and the Pakistani government, we hope to uh, eradicate in the coming years to eradicate uh, polio. One of the challenges that we face, and I'll tell you an anecdote from a recent conversation I had with the governor of uh, Hyber Pakhtunkhwa province, is the governance situation in the tribal areas and the role that we think that may play in instability. Uh, we all know about how uh, the tribal areas have at times provided a safe haven for uh, the Pakistani Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the Haqqani network. Um, despite uh, Operation uh, Zarbi Azab, the Pakistani military still believes there's about 20% uh, of the work still needs to be done to, to clear out the remnants of the, of the Pakistani Taliban. But uh, one of the issues that we face with the very large amount of assistance that we provide to the border region. And by the way, since 2009, USAID has provided approximately $1 billion worth of assistance uh, to the federally administered tribal areas. That's a lot of money for a region with a population of less than 5 million people. Uh, but again, getting back to the governance issue, uh, the question of uh, do the people in the border region feel that they have uh, a stake uh, in the state, in the broader state, when they exist legally outside of, of Pakistani's constitutional structure? In other words, the, the absence of uh, the parliament's writ, uh, the absence of what we would consider a modern rule of law, the, you know, the absence of the, of the Pakistani court system, <clears throat> and the role that this might play in fueling militancy uh, and insurgency. Uh, when I was in Peshawar a couple of weeks ago, I had this conversation uh, with Governor Khan. And for those of you, uh, I'm, I'm sure many of you know that unlike 
uh, the other governors in Pakistan, the governor of Hyber, Pakhtunkhwa, actually does have power. Uh, he's the guy that rules over uh, the tribal areas. <clears throat> and he, his vision for the future of, uh, the go of governance in the tribal areas was very much uh, status quo. It's a, it continues to be a security problem. The military hasn't finished its job. Uh, Zarbi Azab isn't complete. Um, essentially, the tribal areas aren't, were, are not yet ready for at least Pakistani-style uh, democracy. And there is a conversation going on now uh, within Pakistan about the future, the political future of the border area whether it should become an independent province, whether it should be incorporated into Hyber Pakhtunkhwa, or have a, a special status as uh, some of the other regions of, of, of Pakistan uh, has. But this, at least I see, is a cardinal issue to the future stability of the country. Um, and uh, it's not something that's going to be resolved just by having the displaced uh, returned uh, to the border areas. That's really only the beginning of the challenge. Um, I don't have the answers. Uh, I don't think anybody does, but uh, it's one of the things that I have found to be uh, most interesting about this very most interesting country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. <coughs> Jim? Uh, let me just make a a few remarks to complement uh, what what John said from because the, the although the uh, the Pakistani military operations in Waziristan have created a new new dimension uh, to the refugee um, problem, uh, Afghans and Pakistanis have been have been dealing with various aspects of this for quite some time, and there is a, a very definitive uh, and strong. Um, set of issues involving refugees and uh, internally displaced people in Afghanistan, obviously. So as the, as the problem has been exacerbated in Pakistan over the last year or so, so has it in Afghanistan, not just because of the Pakistani population moving across the frontier into Afghanistan, but a new wave of internally displaced people within Afghanistan itself has also um, developed uh, due to various dimensions of the conflict that are going on. So within the last several decades, some three million Afghans took refuge in Pakistan. And they're, they're dribbling back, mostly on a voluntary basis, um, but not in huge numbers. And there are still some two and a half million uh, refuge, Afghan refugees in Pakistan. And I have to say the Pakistani government uh, deserves a, a lot of credit for uh, for dealing with that problem and for bearing that burden for some time, although they have a large amount, a considerable amount of international help in doing so. So there are uh, two and a half million Afghan refugees in Pakistan, roughly one million in Iran, uh, a very large, if you will, migrant labor population of Afghans in Iran as well, which uh, the Iranians are, are dealing with. And there are now an additional several hundred thousand, at least, uh, Pakistanis who've <coughs> migrated across the border into, uh, into Afghanistan. Many of those people, uh, from, the, from the very beginning of the military operation, many of those people have lodged with 
relatives, family members, extended family members. Um, some of them um, went into camps that the Afghan government was very eager and willing to um, to arrange along with uh, the high UN High Commission on, on Refugees, but most of them are still in the border area just on the other side. And it's, uh, it's important to recognize that uh, for many of these families, the, the border doesn't really exist. Their family members exist on both sides of the frontier and they go back and forth uh, almost at will um, quite frequently. And that's going to continue to be the case because neither the Pakistanis nor the Afghans have the real means or capabilities of controlling or adequately policing the border, at least not under anything like present-day circumstances, which include what word to use to describe the, the Durant line, whether it's a border or a frontier or a line or a colonial contrivance. Um, I think it's also important, I've, one of the reports that I saw, it says that UNHCR expects that it will take several years for the Pakistani population to uh, return uh, to Pakistan. Um, I know that the, the Pakistani government is tr trying to do what it can to attract those people to come back, but there will be continuing concerns about insecurity um, for people who are going back based on past experience with other areas where this uh, phenomenon has existed, again, on both sides of the border. Um, we have, we, the, not the United States, um, has made a considerable effort on the Afghan side to, to deal with this uh, phenomenon as well, also recalling uh, that there are some one million, nobody really knows how many, but at least a million Afghans who are internally displaced within Afghanistan as a result of the conflict. Most of those people have migrated to cities, to urban centers. Um, uh, there's a very large number of them in Kabul itself living in very deplorable uh, circumstances in, in refugee camps that are self-started right in the middle of the city, built out of cardboard and mud and where, where they can meddle, and it's a, it's a really grim situation. So uh, we collectively at the, as the international community have been grappling with that also for some time. Uh, trying to provide an, at least the bare minimum <coughs> of sustenance that those people need so they don't freeze to death during the winter, which unfortunately happens with considerable regularity. So in total, um, last year the American government, mostly USA, USAID, spent more than, more than $180 million just in addressing humanitarian needs. Uh, in Afghanistan. Not all that went to refugees or internally displaced, but the, but the bulk of it did. So now looking to the future, um, this should be an area where Afghanistan and, and Pakistan could strengthen their cooperation as what one hopes will be a greater sense of normalcy returns uh, to the border region. Um, I think that very much remains to be seen. Um, one of the net effects of, or one of the side effects of the of the military operation in Waziristan has been that the TTP and other terrorists have also migrated across the border along with the refugees and, their, uh, and the um, TTP and others have taken their families with them in many cases and have now in effect created the mirror image on the Afghan side of the border of the situation that exists in Pakistan <coughs> with, uh, with 
uh, effective um, safe havens and refuge for terrorists as well as uh, genuine, genuine refugees on the Afghan side of the border. Um, they're not, as the Pakistanis sometimes suggest, they are not actual safe havens in the sense that the Afghans afford them um, protection, but they are um, outposts of refuge uh, where it's very difficult to get at them in very forbidding terrain. Uh, where our military, U.S. and international military capability is now quite limited as a result of the drawdown, and the Afghans themselves don't have the capabilities or the, or the manpower really to, to devote the kind of effort that would be necessary to, um, to track these people and find them, which is very difficult to do in any circumstance, I can assure you, because we have been trying to do it uh, for years, including at the peak of the presence of the U.S. military. <coughs> Um, and we have, when, when the international forces have found TTP on the Afghan side of the border, uh, they have attacked them or captured them. So, but it's, it's very hard to do. And it's certainly not going to be uh, any easier uh, going forward. So one of the problems that, uh, that we will all have to address is as the, as the pa Pakistani population that's, that's now in Afghanistan starts returning, to Waziristan and to their, to their homes, um, uh, there will be a need to deal with the eventual reality that that will mean that the, the, the members of terrorist organizations who have migrated will also be migrating back into Pakistan. And that will be a, a very serious problem uh, to deal with in the future. And the, the worst of all worlds would be that they maintain a presence in Afghanistan and reestablish a presence within Pakistan itself. So that will be a security challenge going forward, uh, but not today's challenge. Great. Thank you, Jim. Um, I think I'm just going to kick this off with one question to both of you and then throw it open for discussion. Can I suggest that we're having trouble hearing all three of you. Oh, I'm sorry. Closer? Okay. Is this better? Oh. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, we can't hear our own voices. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think in some ways you may have touched on this, but um, the question is basically how do you, um, and you touched on this towards the end of your presentation, Jim, too, how do you qualify people as displaced person in quotes? considering the porous border between uh, AFPA, what is the checks and balances in the system? Or how do you verify? <clears throat> well, in Pakistan, people are deemed as displaced when the Pakistani government determines that they're displaced and registers them as displaced. For example, there are <clears throat> many uh, de facto displaced Pakistanis and Afghans in Pakistan who are not considered as such by the Pakistani government because they're not registered. And this is one of the reasons why the data that we have are based on estimates. And it's, it's effectively the same um, in Afghanistan, although I think the, the UN plays probably a large, a large role in this as well. But many of these people who are moving around the country are, are not registered. They don't have a, 
um, solid identification system in Afghanistan. They don't have passports. Um, some of them actually live on both sides of the border, depending on what time of year it is or where they can find work or where their relatives are at any given moment. So it, it's, a, it's a very fluid situation that defies the Western predilection for precision. That's not a, that's not a huge um, um, uh, trait in, in this particular area. So it's, a lot of it is just, at least in Afghanistan, people who live in these very squalid camps for displaced people are self-identifying because they wouldn't be there if, if they had another place to go. Well, <clears throat> the Pakistani government has a framework for the Afghan refugees. They want them out and back in, in Afghanistan, uh, and they're clear about that. But as far as the displaced, the Economic Affairs Division at the Pakistani Ministry of Finance has uh, established uh, an operation to address the, the very problem that you just mentioned. <clears throat> and they've asked for USAID's assistance in this. And it really is to bring together all of the various actors and the various resources, both within the government and among the donors, to better manage and coordinate the assistance to an eventual return of the internally displaced. So the government really is trying to uh, address that problem. Mark Andre Franch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He lost his wife in the earthquake. Mm -hmm. And um, so there have been many experiences of, of uh, working through really devastating circumstances that the two of you have had in, in Haiti. And of course, the, the notion of the Dominican Republic expelling all Haitians, even within their many years, or now the Pakistani government wants to Sources come running, uh, NGOs and whatever. Um, I took the road from Chitral to the rest of the, the district and into. 
to um, thunder and uh, locusts and finally to Wilkit. Um, I'm getting reports from my friends there of um, many people who have been devastated by that earthquake who are not receiving help uh, from anyone, including the government of Chicago or Yoko Pakistan. Um, and I know that USAID has done That's absolutely right, is that we, uh, the, particularly with respect to the two most recent earthquakes, we offered assistance and the Pakistani government uh, declined. Uh, it's very interesting, however, because the government of Hyber Pakhtunkhwa did ask for assistance. Be they said exactly what you just said. But we are bound under diplomatic protocols to recognize the authority of the federal government. And uh, they did not want our assistance. To be honest with you, we actually uh, did provide assistance indirectly through the World Food Program and UNICEF, uh, but under the radar screen. Um, the, packet, the, what the, the way the government responded and the way they've responded to natural disasters in the time that I've been there is to send in the military. And uh, the military really is the most capable uh, government entity in Pakistan. From what I've seen, uh, they do a, a pretty good job. Now, I've heard that that may not be the case with Chitral and that the situation is really bad. <clears throat> and I've gotten, I've had actually people to come to see me personally with photographs uh, to talk about Chitral. But as I said before, the government has rejected our offers of assistance. I do believe that the government did go to the city of Chittal, mm -hmm. and there were healthy, uh, which was least devastated by the whole district. Um, and they were starting to help with the roads. Mm -hmm. In the, in what I hope will happen is that both governments, um, even though they're, they've had a been through a difficult. Um, uh, period recently, uh, the way th this should work is that both governments should try to find a way to cooperate on identifying as best they can who's coming across the uh, who's coming across the <coughs> frontier, and uh, try to prevent people going in both directions. Uh, but that's been a, a there have been a number of efforts over the at least the last four years that I've been involved in Afghanistan. There have been a number of efforts to improve that kind of cross-border cooperation. It's still very much on the agenda, but even under the best of circumstances, as I said, it's very hard to do. Um, most people who live in that part of Pakistan and Afghanistan 
want to have freedom to move across the border. It's the way they've lived for quite a long time. So the, the notion of es establishing control is, is a quite difficult notion uh, to bring to bear. But there are, there are other means as people go through various aspects of registration and assistance, other things, there, there are ways to try to identify people who are moving who shouldn't be moving uh, in both directions. And, and we hope very much that um, you know, the, the way to improve that cooperation can be, can be found. That is very much a part of our plan, like the Gomelzam Dam <clears throat> and the, uh, hopefully, the Kurumtangi Dam, uh, not only for producing energy, but also for irrigating land. Uh, you know, clearly uh, getting kids in school and in the borderlands. Uh, well, you, pro you may know that uh, Pakistan has the second largest number of out-of-school children in the world. Out of school, kids that should be in school that are not in school. Um, and of course, it's uh, healthcare uh, is, is uh, you know, certainly among the worst in, in the entire Asian continent. So y you're right. I mean, the, it's a combination of helping uh, the people in that area to uh, create the institutions that they need to be prosperous. And that is energy and agriculture because that's what most people depend on. But it needs to be more than that. It needs to be uh, small businesses, uh, people generating their own jobs. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, I, I think, uh, or some of us think that governance is really important as well. And that people need to feel they have a stake in how they're governed. They need to feel that um, they can get justice. Now, there's, a, there's a, a different point of view among some Pakistanis, which is that Pakistan, the Pakistani state ought to just leave uh, the Pashtuns alone and let them have their jirgas and their, you know, their, their informal mechanisms and their informal. But the question is, to what extent does that help to fuel militancy and uh, uh, to fuel the the groups that are causing so much instability, not only in the border region between Pakistan and Afghanistan, but throughout throughout all of Pakistan, because there, you know, these issues exist as well in South Punjab, in Karachi. So we at USAID and the broader U.S. government, we we see economic development in the tribal areas as both a development and a national security challenge. Um, that seemed to be quite successful, uh, sort of an intermediary between sort of 
Well, I don't know about that in particular. I don't know if that's continuing. <clears throat> but I can tell you that the Pakistani Prime Minister, Prime Minister Sharif, has convened a committee to look into governance reform in the tribal areas. And you know, one of the issues is what to do with the, uh, the Frontier Crimes Regulation, which is the law under which uh, the region is governed. You know, can that be replaced? Should that be replaced? To what extent should the writ of the Pakistani Constitution extend uh, to the border areas? Uh, you know, one one issue that <clears throat> was met, that Ambassador Cunningham mentioned earlier is that uh, the Pakistani state does not have control over the whole border uh, area, and that's part of the problem. So. You know, the government sees that it's a problem. They see that it's uh, at least potentially a source of instability. And to their credit, at least they're starting to look at potential reforms uh, to, you know, whether it's something like what you described, an incremental step, or whether it's something more dramatic, which is a constitutional step, I think it remains to be seen. But more and more Pakistanis are now speaking up about governance reform and political reform in the tribal areas. Could you elaborate on some of those reforms? Or, you know, do you, in your view, do you think? Well, I think, it, I think it, it extends to all of the institutions that we associate <clears throat> with political reform. And that, uh, that's everything from uh, the direct election of representatives, uh, a, justice, a court system that delivers justice, civil and political rights, uh, the rights of minorities, religious rights. Um, it's, the whole, it's the whole package. But again, the question is to what extent will those kinds of reforms be ultimately introduced in the tribal areas? There are many Pakistanis, like uh, Governor Khan in Hyperpaktunkwa, who basically say, look, it's a security issue. Uh, we've got to clear out the militants. Uh, and uh, politi political reform in the tribal areas is a luxury that we can't afford right now. Well, do you mean, <clears throat> for example, uh, different donors, or do you mean donors and the Pakistani government? And well, the the United States is in a somewhat different position from many of the other donors because there really is fundamentally a relationship of distrust between the United States and Pakistan. You know, we we at USAID packed up and left. Uh, Pakistan for about a decade 
I think it was from 1990 to 2001 because of the Pressler Amendment and the nuclear issue. And uh, the Pakistanis uh, sometimes don't let us forget that <clears throat> and that we're seen as being not necessarily uh, reliable, uh, that we come into Pakistan and we take what we want and then we leave. I always reiterate that we're in Pakistan for the long term uh, because we have a mutual interest in promoting stability and prosperity in Pakistan. And hopefully as the years go by, um, that, will, that will sink in. What I have found is that some of the issues that we and other donors have with the Pakistani government is uh, differing priorities, but you, but you see this often in developing countries. For example, uh, the Pakistani government a very high priority is uh, the management and return of the displaced and the stabilization of the border areas. Uh, and they like the fact that the donors are putting money in, especially the United States, because it's a security issue. But they're also quite keen on energy. Uh, but, and there's clearly a political dimension to that, because the Sharif government wants to be able to uh, show Pakistani voters by 2018 that he and the Muslim League have addressed the energy problem, whereas some of us in the donor community want to see more progress made on economic reform. Uh, privatization, revenue generation, combating corruption, uh, greater management and transparency in the Pakistani national budget, but of course, those are intangible things that you can't see and won't necessarily get you votes uh, during an election campaign. So we have some tension uh, with the government over those kinds of priorities, but, I don't, but it's not unique uh, to Pakistan. You'll see that in other uh, countries as well. Yeah, might add, we have a lot of the same issues, uh, although they're qualitatively different in, in our relationship with uh, the very significant aid program that we have in Afghanistan. Um, it's, it's really, if you think about it, uh, any, any amount of significant outside aid and influence immediately runs into all kinds of concepts of um, national culture and sovereignty. Uh, and that uh, was a very sensitive issue uh, during the, uh, the end of the Karzai uh, period in Afghanistan. And, and one that we um, addressed to a large extent by a, what I think is a really unique process that we in the Afghans created of actually sitting down in a, in a rather rigorous format with the donor community and the Afghan government and working through what funding priorities were and how they were going to be implemented <coughs> and how they were going to be monitored. And that process uh, now exists and it's uh, working through various iterations of it. Uh, but that would be a very difficult thing to do in a place like Pakistan, or indeed most other places. I think where you have where you have uh, foreign foreign assistance going in significant factors. It's a, it's a very kind of intrusive way of intrusive in terms of their na their own national process of uh, bringing the donor community in. But it was essential to do in Afghanistan's case.
No, I I, uh, <clears throat> I I agree with what you said. I, I did not realize that there had been some amendments to the frontier crimes regulation, but uh, th there still is the broader issue of you know how how that region will be governed, uh, given the anachronistic governance structure that it that that it currently has. But I know that's an issue for the Pakistani government to decide, and certainly not for the United States or any other country. I'm also wondering about the issue of a special status for Fata. Um, what might that be, and how what other countries are involved in influencing that, and is Pashtunistan still on the table? I'm pretty sure it's in some of the text. Uh, I, uh, well, I don't think that the Pakistanis would be uh, enthusiastic about that. I, I, I think that the, you know, the issue really is, you know, my understanding is that there's a, there are options, one of which would be that, Hiber, uh, that uh, the tribal areas would be incorporated into Hyber Pakhtunkhwa. The other is that it would become a province. The other is that it would become a special a uh, region like uh, Gilgit-Baltistan, and another option would be that the status quo is maintained. And that's something that uh, I think is being discussed. 
by many people in Pakistan, including in the parliament, and there is this committee that's looking into it, and, and we'll see, you know, we'll see what, uh, what comes of it. But I, I, I don't think that, uh, as far as I know, uh, neither the United States know, nor any other foreign government is involved in that discussion. I mean, that's, that's a, as you mentioned, that's a sovereign prerogative, and you know, they will decide, um, the Pakistanis will decide the future of the, the political future of the tribal region. It's just that we see the status quo as hindering the development work that we're doing. So it's, it's good that it's being looked at. I have, I'm just taking it um, again to a different aspect. I, I just would like to ask you about the, you know, the effect that the day-to-day -day evolving polit political dimensions between AFPAC, um, Afghanistan and Pakistan, that has effect on the work that you do every day. How does that affect? Well, it, <clears throat> it has a big effect on the work that we do because we, one of the goals of our program is to promote what we call uh, regional connectivity, and that is enhanced trade and investment among all of the countries of the region, and that includes uh, Afghanistan, it includes the Central Asian republics, uh, and most importantly to, to Pakistan is China. Um, USAID has rehabilitated four major roads that connect Pakistan and Afghanistan. Most recently, the Peshawar-Torhum uh, Road. Um, and uh, we've had several regional trade projects uh, to promote regional trade, in particular between Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. Now, part of that is that we have a, a broader interest in promoting more trade between Pakistan and Afghanistan, but part of the reason also is that we believe that Pakistan's prosperity is, to a certain extent, linked to its ability to enhance its economic relationship with its partners. That is, it's proven to be a challenge, um, not only with India, but it's now proving to be somewhat of a challenge with Afghanistan because the relationship, even in the short term that I've been in Pakistan, the relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan has turned somewhat south. And the Pakistanis now talk increasingly about the China-Pakistan economic corridor as being the featured component of regional connectivity and much less so about Afghanistan. And of course, that's not what we want to hear because we've invested all of this money in trying to promote greater trade and, in, uh, and, and, and connections between uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. So yeah, that, that bilateral relationship does have an effect on our program. Jim? And there are, um, I mean, as John said, there are very good reasons to um, to try to develop um, trade in the region from Afghanistan's um, view in all directions. But uh, 
there's a strategic requirement that both um, Pakistan and China have going forward with this uh, economic corridor, assuming that that develops, uh, which that among other things, um, trade doesn't just move in one direction, although moving from China west is a very important aspect of trade. Uh, but there's also a pressing need in Pakistan for energy, and energy comes from the north um, and the west to some extent, but there's a huge amount of hydroelectric and gas uh, available in Afghanistan and to the north of Afghanistan, and there are projects underway to, to move that energy into, into Pakistan and through Pakistan <coughs> to other destinations, including potentially India. Um, and it seems to me that for the stability and growth of Pakistan itself, as, as well as for the region, a way is going to have to be found to tap and utilize that energy because there, it's, unless Pakistan uh, wants to rely on China for coal and um, develop uh, other alternative sources of energy which are going to be less efficient, um, there's a, a market, uh, or a source rather, available. Um, in the relatively near term for a significant improvement in, in energy supplies if they can find a way to develop those uh, projects with Pakistan and other I mean with Afghanistan and other countries in the region. The, uh, <clears throat> on that topic, just uh, yesterday, Afghanistan and Pakistan agreed to the power purchase agreement under the what's called the CASA 1000, Central Asia, South Asia 1000, and this refers to what Ambassador Cunningham was talking about, which was bringing down hydropower from the Central Asian republics through Afghanistan and into Pakistan. And uh, what the Afghans wanted was for the Pakistanis to buy up all the energy that it wasn't taking. Um, <clears throat> and uh, they've, they've reached an agreement on that. And we at USAID Pakistan are sort of waiting to see now how this will develop to determine what investments we will make in this project because the, there will need to be a transmission line to bring the energy from Afghanistan to Pakistan and then there will need to be a station, a converter station to convert the energy from uh, direct current to alternating current so that it can be fed into the, uh, the national grid in Pakistan. Um, again, we see Pakistan's uh, you know, the lack of, of trade with its partners in the region as being a significant impediment to its uh, growth uh, and development. It really is a problem. There's only, on an annual basis, we believe that there's only about $3 billion worth of trade between India and Pakistan. And of course, you know how big India is. 90% of that relatively small trade is Pakistan, um, taking imports from India, three billion. And it's overwhelmingly in the favor of India. And it, it of course, it's most, if not all, informal. And it's, uh, you know, all of those Indian products, all of those things the Indians make, finding its way into Pakistan. So Pakistan really does need to focus more on exports. We're working in the agriculture sector to promote, for example, agricultural exports. Uh, I'm a big mango fan, and I found that Pakistan makes, you know, 
great mangoes, they've got to be exported. They should be making money off that, and their farmers should be making money off of that. So <clears throat> it needs to be, you know, regional trade needs to be uh, a higher priority. Well, as you know, USAID is legislatively prohibited from any excessive entangle entanglements with the military. We're not involved in the resettlement <clears throat> of refugees. That's something that the Pakistani government and the United Nations um, handle. What we are involved in is the provision of humanitarian assistance to I said refugees, internally displaced people, and then assisting them when they return uh, to the borderlands. So uh, we, um, you know, we do have some involvement with the military, but there's not an overlap and there's not a territorial and... You know, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, clearly in Pakistan, the military is a significant institution, in many ways the most credible uh, institution uh, in the country. Uh, you can see the role that they play uh, in the natural disasters. Uh, and, and we believe, from everything we see, that they, they do a really good job. You know, if there's a flood, if there's an earthquake, <clears throat> and that certainly may be one of the reasons why the government rejects our uh, offers of assistance. Um, you know, you're getting into an area, you know, everybody knows that the Pakistani military plays an outsized role, particularly in Pakistani foreign policy. Um, where the line is drawn, um, it's a mystery, you know, it's a mystery to me and I think a mystery to most of my colleagues. Jim, any closing thoughts? Um, no, well, just let me say that um, of all the, th all the things that we've been discussing, whether it's economic development or dealing with population flows or returning refugees or dealing with internally displaced people, all of those problems are made more difficult by um, the, the state of difficult relations between the Afghan and Pakistan uh, governments and by the conflict that exists on both sides of the border, which is why um, the United States and our international partners have been working so hard to, to create a better sense of strategic conver convergence between uh, the international community and the Afghan and Pakistani governments. And um, a, another episode of that is taking place um, next week in Islamabad is hosting something called the Heart of Asia uh, process, which will be meeting at very senior levels. I hope President Ghani will attend. 
<coughs> to, uh, to take up a lot of the issues that we've been discussing, particularly economic cooperation, but uh, all aspects of regional cooperation. And it's, it's a real tragedy that um, uh, we haven't been able, we collectively, not the United States, haven't been able to generate uh, a better, sen a clearer sense of purpose among the countries in, in the region, particularly between Pakistan and Afghanistan, on how to accomplish or how to progress better towards some of these things, including and very specifically controlling the, the terrorists on both sides of the border. And uh, I hope we can continue to make progress <coughs> in that area. Well, I'll, I'll only finish by saying that um, with everything else that goes on and that's going on in the world, uh, including in the Middle East, uh, it's uh, important for all of us to remember how important Pakistan is. Uh, and uh, not only because it's such a significant country, uh, 185 million people, its relationship with India, its relationship with Afghanistan and the role that it plays in promoting regional security. Um, we need to be there. We need to be there for the long term. And uh, it's going to be a long haul in Pakistan in terms of helping the country to develop. But uh, it is important to note that uh, progress is being made. And uh, I'm hoping that as the years go by, certainly in the time that I'm there, <clears throat> that we can continue to improve our relationship with the government and uh, gain its confidence that USAID will be there for them uh, in the long term. And uh, as I said in the very beginning, it's a very challenging country and it's a challenging region and there's a lot uh, that we don't know. But uh, it's very interesting. On that note. Thank you.